1: hello and welcome back to riffs on riffs i'm joe watson i'm here with my co-host toby braswell What's up? You know what? I'm not even going to ask you what's up, Toby. I'm going to tell you mistakes were made. <laughs> mistakes were made? Mistakes were made. Let's go to lunch okay. <laughs> before this session, everybody said, right? It's only a it's only a quarter mile. Let's just walk to lunch. Let's walk to lunch. Let's do that. Yeah. Which was one of those things that sounded good in theory. Well, the sky was clear. Lunch was good. Was it a fantastic lunch?
2: Fantastic lunch. It was especially fantastic because you paid. Sorry. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. You paid. But that was another mistake <laughs> that was made. So tell me what happened on the way back, Toby. Torrential downpour yeah. is what happened. Monsoon weather. So other than that, how are, how are you doing today?
2: I feel like a wet cabbage
1: a today. A wet cabbage? Yeah. A wet cabbage. So a little wrinkly, a little stinkly. Stinkly? Stinky. Whatever. Yeah. Likely to cause passing of gas. Because you, you brought up flatulation on I did. the last episode. I did. So I'm I did.
2: carrying the theme. Well, no. Well, actually... Cabbage is a good thing, and we're going to find out a little later in this episode exactly what I'm talking Ooh, about. more foreshadowing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like that? All right. Well,
1: today, we're going to continue our four-part journey into the history behind the band that no one has heard of, but have absolutely heard on the airwaves, 24 Karat Black.
2: Now, you you know that nobody listens to the airwaves anymore. There's a new thing called the interwebs. Oh, boy. Where you can actually stream. No one calls it the interwebs. No one calls it. Well, <laughs> well you know, you got a point. Them. We've got some elder statesmen here. <laughs> elder statesmen. Get off my lawn, Noah. Yeah. Get off my <laughs> All right. All my. right. Hey, look, in regards to the airwaves,
1: our friends at iHeart Radio mm-hmm. would care to disagree. True, and true. we're not going to upset any potential sponsors here. That is not how the cabbage is made, my friend.
2: Good point. Good point. So where do we leave off on a 24-karat black journey? Now, I believe they were last seen hanging with Elvis— and trying not to inhale the smoke wafting in from the back of a U-Haul. Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Life on the road for the teenage funk orchestra. Well, we talked in previous episodes about Dale Warren's vision for the band's music, but that extended to how he wanted the performances to go as well. So we talked about music and how military he was in the practices, and guess what? Carried it over onto the stage. So let's hear how sax player Jerome Derrickson described it.
0: Dale didn't, didn't gear us toward like you would see Zap or Cameo or Prince or any of that with all the jumping around on stage. He was more sitting up 24-karat black like a mini orchestra. Okay? So the band, the rhythm section, the horn section, we all sat down, okay, like a, like an orchestra. Oh, Okay.
1: like literally an sitting orchestra. in the pit. Yeah, literally. Okay,
0: all right. And then the girls were just out front performing, okay, like the three girls are out front dancing and singing. But the band, we sat down and performed like an orchestra, you know, like with music stands and all that stuff. So that was Dale's vision 24 Karat Black was going to be this musical orchestra.
2: Jerome mentions the girls out front performing, and Dale certainly had a vision for that as well. Here's vocalist Niambi Steele
3: we're in the big TV station studio. And of course, Mr. Warren, he always had etiquette lessons for us. Really? Oh yeah, we had etiquette lessons on how to sit, how to talk, how to have interviews. Listen, the man was, he did it all because he has seen it all. He's seen a lot of stuff. We didn't know nothing. He was giving us, you know, the 411 on how to be a professional. He actually came out on stage one night. I was just frozen. I didn't know what to do. And he actually came out on stage during my number and just walked me from one end of the stage to the other. And all the while, I'm still singing. He says, don't stop singing. He was behind me like a little elf. (laughs) And he's like, just move, move. You gotta move, you gotta work the audience. And I'm still singing, holding the mic, and he's pushing me back and forth across the stage. It was, he just, you know. I can't tell you how much he developed. Whatever I have today, I give him so much credit. He taught me how to be a professional,
2: this might be a good time to ask you a, a question, Joe. Is there a bad time? Is this the type of training still going on with upcoming artists? And do you think that the arrival of YouTube and TikTok, you know, those type of artists, that, that this type of training has gone by the wayside?
1: That's my question to you. That's actually a really, that's a fascinating question, to be honest with you. And I, honestly, I just don't, I don't know. So on one hand, I can see how artists that made their name on social would lack the nuance And the experience required to put on, like, a great performance. I mean, the Beatles performed hundreds of shows before anyone had even heard of them, right? So you you learn your chops, you get on stage, you get that audience feedback, and you just get better. On the other hand, I can see how performances in general have just evolved. So the skills required have changed as well. Hmm. Being live on a stream, I think it's actually incredibly vulnerable, right? You've got... Everybody's reacting personally because they're mm-hmm. seeing you up close and personal. You're having that direct connection with another human and it creates this intimacy for the viewers that you would not get if you were in a, you know, a concert and the nosebleeds in an arena somewhere. So I think the training is maybe just different
2: now. I can totally see that. It's kind of like going from the old black and white TVs to viewing in AK. And although sometimes we really don't need to see someone's pores so clearly. You know, I exfoliate.
1: So <laughs> Well, so far we've discussed Dale Warren's early stint with Barry Gordy and his work with Isaac Hayes. But the other thing that came up a couple of times in our interviews was the 1972 Watt Stacks Benefit Concert.
2: So listen to this lineup. The staple singers. Mm -hmm. Richard Pryor. Crazy. Carla Thomas. Rufus Thomas. Luther Ingram. Kim Weston, Johnny Taylor, The Bar Isaac Hayes, and Albert King. Now, there are some names on this list that have come up in past Riff's episodes. It had to have been awesome to see them all up on stage.
1: You know, it's crazy to me that they were all on Stacks at one point, right? They were all Stax artists. Also makes me wonder how in the heck with that roster did Stacks go under? But we'll get to that story a little bit later. Let's talk a little bit more about that Watts Stax
2: concert. First of all, Toby, what exactly was it? I'm so glad that you asked. Watts-Stacks was a benefit concert that commemorated the Watts riots that occurred seven years prior from August 11th to the 16th in 1965. The riots started in response to civil unrest partially initiated by the fact that there was racially restrictive covenants in real estate despite the Civil Rights Act of 1964.
1: The police force at the time were recruited from the South and were reportedly anti-Black and anti-Latino. That only added to the racial tension in the area, which exploded into riots that lasted for six days. 14,000 members of the California National Guard were deployed, 34 people died, and $40 million of property damage
2: ensued. Forrest Hamilton, Stax Records West Coast director, came up with the idea of a Watts Stax concert and contacted the Stax Record offices in Memphis to share his vision for the seventh Watts Summer Festival. Stax president, Al Bell, decided that the event should be upgraded from a local park in Watts to the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, despite the fact that several of the Coliseum managers doubted that Stax could fill the seats.
1: The organizers also wanted to ensure that the event was accessible to everyone, so they pre-sold tickets for a buck apiece. The doubters were quickly proved wrong. With 112,000 attendees, Watt Stack was the largest gathering of African Americans outside of a civil rights event at that time.
2: That's not all that they did. They also scheduled the event on a well-known Stacks artist's birthday, Isaac Hayes. With a lineup like that and a good cause behind it, how could you lose?
1: Based on the documentary that came out chronicling the event, it was quite the winning proposition. From Kim Weston's blessedly funky version of the national anthem, to the bar and Albert King, and man, too many great performances to mention. Side note, the documentary also reminded me kind of what a genius Richard Pryor was. Mm -hmm. And leading the charge for the Wattstacks concert was none other than composer Dale Warren as the conductor of the orchestra for the event the Salvation Symphony. Ooh. Here's Princess mentioning the notoriety that Dale's involvement with that meant.
4: In the that White Stacks a symphony. It was awesome. It was an awesome experience.
2: Dale's involvement with the Salvation Symphony also made an impression on Niambi. She hadn't heard a twenty-four karat black, but she knew White Stacks.
3: And see, I didn't realize that he was the one that did Wattstacks and the uh, Salvation Symphony. You know, because we'd all heard of Wattstacks.
1: Speaking of Niambi joining the band, let's hear how she came to be part of the second iteration of the group.
3: Oh, I was, you know, I was just happy. You know, I was just happy to be there and meet new people. And, and I met Mr. Warren backstage, and he was telling me all about stuff. And he was like, maybe you should come to Chicago and audition. And I was like, you know, that's what I didn't know. I didn't really know the whole story of what had gone on before they got to Indianapolis. They just, you know, I just knew that I had an opportunity that a lot of people didn't have. So I i sold my food stamps and went to Chicago. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't have much money. I was a single mother with two kids kind of dreaming of this dream I'd had since high school to sing, you know, sing in, sing in a band and do those kind of things. I didn't really have a lot of encouragement because, you know, my, my mother and stepfather, they worked every day and that's what they, you know, expected me to do.
2: It's amazing what people would do to follow their dream and seek fame and fortune. It was around this time that 24 Karat Black was starting to have a little bit of issues with the appropriation of Cabbage. What, are you reading off your grocery list? Why do we keep talking about Cabbage? Well, I'm just going to let Niambi explain it.
3: It kind of came out later because one of my g- good friends in the band was Tyrone Steels. He was the drummer. And because our name was so similar, and my oldest son was named Tyrone.
1: Oh, wow. Oh, okay.
3: So that kind of made us you know, bond with each other. And so Tyrone was on the road with his wife, Teresa. They kind of looked out for me because they knew I didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> Even though I was older than all of them. I was 23, something like that. They were like 18, 19. I think Princess was 17 or 18, something like that. You know, they kind of schooled me on what was going on and, you know, what had happened. And I heard about the Italians. You know, but I didn't really meet anybody from the old band except Tyrone Jerome Derrickson, which we call Cabbage.
1: Okay, hold on a second. How do you get a nickname like Cabbage? Please talk (laughs) about
2: it. Please talk about it. I had to hear this story.
3: Because Cabbage was money at that time.
2: Mm. Ah, okay.
3: Cabbage was like, well, I'm out here to get that money. I'm out here to get that Cabbage. So we just, you know, everybody called him Cabbage.
1: In addition to being a necessary ingredient for coleslaw, cabbage makes the world go round.
2: And if you don't have it, then you end up on the losing end of Monopoly. Bankrupt. Now keep in mind that this band's music was, for all intents and purposes, being funded by Dale Warren. He was quite successful, but everything has its limits. And those limits
1: hit the wall like a crash test dummy when Stax Records went bankrupt. Here's a snippet of what Jeff Kolath, executive director of the Stax Museum, had to say on the topic.
5: Despite Stax's great success, you know, there was never, never fully accepted that you had an integrated workplace. You had black musicians, black executives, record executives, the head of the publicity, eventual owner of the company in prominent public roles. And you had success. This is one of the greatest examples of black entrepreneurship that you see with Al Bell taking over. Black excellence, black genius, and black economic success. And there is physical manifestation of that in Isaac Hayes' 1972 Cadillac Eldorado. It's more than just an amazing car with 24 karat gold trim and custom paint. It is a physical manifestation, it is a visible, tangible piece of economic, cultural, and political success in so many ways. And so that made people uncomfortable. And I think that's one of the reasons why Stacks, you know, when it did fall in hard times after 1972, which they reached the highest heights they possibly could be, and then just a low general slide towards, towards bankruptcy in the end.
1: We could, and should, do another entire series on Stacks. Jeff's insights into how things played out for the record company are fascinating. For now, suffice to say that when Stacks went under, the demise of 24-karat Black was not far behind. Dale tried to keep things afloat by working on the soundtrack for a universally panned movie with pre Bronco, O.J. Simpson. Here's Neon Beyond that.
3: I think The Bottom started to drop out the year that The Klansman was made. It's a movie with O.J. Simpson, Richard Burton. And he went, he left us to go to California to do the soundtrack for that movie. And he went there because he. He need to make the money to keep us on the road. But we didn't see it as like a an emergency. We just thought he had a job and he does, you know, he's a conductor. He's a writer. He's, you know, an orchestrator. And so we didn't think anything of it. But little by little, you know, you go from eating a big dinner Where all of us are at a table, which it was huge. When we went to a restaurant, they had to put at least four tables together. We went from that to bags of hamburgers, bags of White Castles, no money. We never really got paid.
2: I asked Princess about her perspective and why Dale didn't pull the plug sooner. When Stacks went bankrupt, why not just pull the plug and just say, look, everybody just go home? Did he ever talk to you about that? Why he didn't make that decision?
4: Well, we didn't have a gap in there, you know. We had a gap in there. And then he went and did the
2: movie. Then he got some
4: more money. and Then he was able to kind of pull up on his bootstraps and <laughs> do it again. Like I said, we were excited. I mean, we were in an ambitious group of young kids, you know. It was exciting. I mean, from hotel to motel to Holiday Inn. Sometimes we slept <laughs> in the back of the U-Haul, you know. We were just going from gig to gig. And... Each town we went in, it was like the chitlin circuit, we called it. And each town that we went in, at the club, you know, we we're always going to find somebody who's going to take us in. <laughs> so we always find somebody that would take us in and feed us at least. You know, we only had two people in the club a night. <laughs> you know, we can not make it, any money on the door or whatever. And in Chicago, we would play at this club, I think it was Wardy's Club we knee-deep snow. We just out there, we, we so faithful. We show up, we show up, we show up. Be Two people in the club, knee-deep snow, we're showing up, playing, playing.
1: And Jerome shares the story that every musician is all too familiar with. Right after this break.
0: What happened, it, it really just kind of faded. You know, the group just kind of faded out. After one half of the group went to Michigan and became shot done, the remaining part of the group, we hung around Cincinnati pretty much as long as we could till it just faded. You know, after the split of the unit, the Cincinnati half milled around for a few months and then it just faded and we all just disbanded and went to other, other local bands that we could go join.
1: Jerome, as we'll hear in the next episode, certainly landed on his feet. Larry Austin also went on to find success. Here's how his wife, LaDonna, describes what happened when 24 Karat Black disbanded.
2: Here's my question. Reading the information about the history of 24 Karat Black and all that they went through, it seemed like when the band kind of fell apart and kind of disbanded, people went their separate ways and the transition for some was a little bit easier than others. Can we talk about the transition for Larry and others to kind of form the band Shotgun? Because, you know, how did that all come to play? You know, because it seemed like there was a definite split.
4: Yeah, that was kind of a rough time. At first, because you got this group of guys who had formed this group, 24 Karat Black, and the time that they spent together, the ups, the downs that they had, and everything. And then there comes this disagreement or whatever. And some of the original members stayed with 24 Karat Black. And then Dale, he had brought in some additional members. And then that group stayed as 24 Karat Black. And then Larry and some of the other members that were part of that group left. And then for a period of time, they just still kept rehearsing and everything. But then they eventually formed the group Shotgun.
2: With all the turmoil and no money remaining to fund the group, 24 Karat Black went the way of a song from Metallica's Ride the Lightning album, Fade to Black.
1: Love that song. Actually, I love that album. But are we even allowed to make a Metallica reference? Hmm. I feel like if Lars, you know, kind of gets wind of this, we're going to get a lawsuit. I don't want to go the way of Napster.
2: Well, I'm just going to go on a limb and say that Lars is not listening to a podcast about 24 Karat Black. That's probably true. Uh, And I will point out that the band clearly hoped to use Warren's status and ride the lightning. But unfortunately, their success was trapped under ice and suffered a creeping death.
1: Oh, okay. So I guess we're going to
2: fight fire with fire. Sorry. <laughs> there
1: is no escape now. Just remember, when the time comes, don't ask for whom the bell tolls. Mm. It tolls for thee, Toby. It tolls for thee. And speaking of requiems, the band may have no longer existed, but the legacy of their music
2: certainly lives on. Well, legacy is a word that comes up more and more the older we get. Uh, not just in music and other artistic avenues as well.
1: I think one of the great testimonies to one's legacy is just being remembered and mentioned in the conversation. Every one of those mentions breathes life back into a project or to the very essence of
2: one's art or impact. Now, we've both been involved with bands in the past, so we know all about the prospect of not making it big in dealing with that. Instead of becoming the next Red Man and Method Man, I found myself being happy with just an occasional fan stating something on Facebook about a song, show, or an album that we did in the past. I mean, do you feel the same
1: way, Joe? You know what? I do. Probably because we're elder statesmen now. But, I mean, I feel that way about this pod. It'd be great to win awards and certainly vote for us whenever that comes (laughs) up. And be awesome be able to do this full-time. But with that being said, I'm so happy just to get a text or an email from a Riffs listener who likes what we do? I mean, how cool
2: is that? So, back to 24 Karat Black and their legacy, the three band members we interviewed had very different paths after leaving 24 Karat Black real estate, motherhood, tragedy, gold, and then more tragedy. Let's hear from Niambi first. Trigger warning for our listeners this next story deals with violent assault. So,
1: the band is now defunct, and you keep your bags packed for a couple of years, but did you keep performing, doing other stuff, or what came next?
3: I stayed with the friends in Namo. Her name was Julie. She was a dancer. She had two girls. I stayed over there. I was trying to sell some microphones because I had some microphones. And I knew another vocalist in Chicago. Her name was Colette. And I was going to sell my microphones to Colette. And I had somebody drop me over by where Colette lived. But she wasn't home. So I kind of walked around the neighborhood and I found a little bar to sit in and I didn't have, maybe I had a couple of dolls or something. So I had like one beer that lasted like four hours because I was trying to wait to <laughs> see if he would come home. And a bunch of guys came in, they had been playing basketball. So of course I was still sitting there looking crazy. And uh, one guy was like, you, are you okay? You know, you, you. so, you know, I kind of like, I'm trying to wait on Colette. And he was like, I know Colette. And he's like, well, why don't you ride with me? I got to do something. And I was like, OK. He took me, you know, a couple of places. Then we went back to where Colette was. She was never home. And so I was like, well, you know what? I better go on back to where I stay because by this time it was dark. The moon was out. Full moon. I'll never forget it. I was like, well, if you could just take me to 75th or wherever it was. And I, by this time, I knew enough to know that he made the wrong turn. He should have made a right, but instead he made a left. Uh-uh. And I was like, "Okay, I don't. Something changed. The whole air changed." And I was like, "This is not right." He tried to kill me. He pulled into this place. I later learned it was McCormick's place or McCormick's Creek or something like that. It was kind of like a lovers' lane, or you know, people would park and. Because you can look out over the water and you can see, you know, Lake Michigan. And he was going to throw me off the cliff. And he was beating. He was beating me. I was just screaming like, and nobody helped me. It It was a summer night. Like I said, the moon was full. People were in their cars. They were drinking, partying, whatever. It's kind of like a parking place where people just sat and drank or whatever. But he was beating me and nobody helped me. And I was just begging for my life. I was like, well, why are you doing this? I was like, why don't you just let me go? And he was like, you want me to let you go? I was like, yeah. He said, okay. And he left. And so I ran because he was in the car and I was on foot. I, know, I no longer had shoes because they had been thrown off my feet. I ran to the highway and crossed across 12 lanes. And I was screaming for my life, and these two white guys picked me up in an MG. And I was sitting in the middle of an MG convertible like I was a queen (laughs) in a parade.
1: (laughs) Such a harrowing experience, and we don't wish that on anyone. Thankfully, she got away to safety. Nyambi told us that despite that experience and all the challenges that she encountered on the road with 24 Karat Black, she always had hope that the band would get back together. And continue to chase the dream.
3: I did finally make it home, like I said, for my son's birthday. He was four years old. You know, even though my bags were packed and my heart was broken, my body had been broken. I mean, I wasn't broken like bones or anything, but I was beat up. But I never told anybody. I just went on, I went straight back in the theater. And I started, you know, just going back to where where I started from. I started doing more theater. I won some awards. I left Indianapolis. I moved to New York. I met Jack McDuff. I recorded with him at Sugar Hill Records because he was the only jazz artist that Sugar Hill, because Sylvia Robinson bought a jazz label, and that's how he was on that label. And it was so funny because Dale Warren had told me, you're going to be bigger than Sylvia Robinson because that was the model.
2: That is a crazy and disturbing story, and I certainly don't want to lessen its impact. But I also know we are at the end of our time together for our episode and would like to end on something a little bit more upbeat.
1: All right, I've got your back. So let's talk to Princess and see where her path led after the disbanding of 24 Karat Black.
4: So I moved back with my mom and dad with my children. And then I um, got a job working at the nursing home. And I got us a one-bedroom apartment. And in the daytime, it was our living room. It was the living room, and at night, it was my bedroom because I had a sofa bed, and they slept in the in the one-bedroom. But we evolved from that. I uh, just uh, retired from working at, for a real estate company, Sipsy Klein Realtors, for 26 years. I became a corporate receptionist there, and I've been a member of my church for like 43 years. And I've been a a licensed minister also since 1999. Yeah, I've been constantly singing, singing at weddings and funerals. And and like I said, at church, I minister at church, and I'm a praise team leader for the uh, Cincinnati Baptist District Association's women's department. And I sing with the Cincinnati Jazz Orchestra. They have this uh, production that they do every year. And I'm still singing. I'm just I'm just trying to figure out how can I get some reparations since all this music is getting sampled and they're making all of this money, even though I don't have any rights to it.
2: So Princess is still singing, and she says, "Praise God for that. She still has a voice like an angel, which we'll get into our next episode. She brings up the question we're all asking. Why have they not been paid? And how does that get rectified? We also haven't heard from Jerome and his path
1: after leaving 24 Karat Black. In our next episode, he'll tell a story that's never been told before about an artist that we discussed in the very first episode ever of Rips on Rips. We're going to bring things full circle, get all the answers on our fourth and final episode in this series. Until then, thank you for listening. And we'll catch you next time for Riffs on Riffs. I'm Joe Watson.
2: And I'm Toby Braswell. Keep listening. Huzzah.
5: Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of too much F.E. perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer, Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Fraites from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11.